Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 15. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind it is a how truth long it was. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. As always, we like to offer you a variety of readings, which I think we have for you today. I'll begin with my friend Valerie Tucker's true story titled, The Quilts of Comfort. In mid-July of 2009, my husband came home from work one Tuesday evening and said, Man, I just don't feel good. Within the next five days, he went to the dock in the box three times, complaining of body aches, a bad cough, and fighting a fever. This was the beginning of the swine flu epidemic. So on two of the visits, they did a rapid flu test, and both of which came back negative. On his third visit, he was diagnosed with double pneumonia. Over the weekend, out-of-state company arrived at our house. And on Tuesday, a week after Greg first mentioned not feeling well, I was out shopping with the wife when he called me and said I needed to come home and take him to the doctor. It was a hot summer day, and I was dressed in shorts, sandals, and a short sleeve shirt. I returned home and took him back to the dock in the box for his fourth visit in a week. As the nurse was checking him in and taking his vitals, he said they were busy, and it might be a while before Greg saw the doctor. But when he checked Greg's oxygen level and saw it was at 85, above 90 is normal, he said, you just moved to the top of the list. He quickly talked to the doctor and came back to tell us we needed to get to St. Al's emergency room in Eagle as soon as as possible. We wouldn't have to have such a long wait there as at the main hospital emergency room. We were at the ER for five hours as they tried to figure out what was wrong with Greg. Finally, they put him on oxygen and transported him by ambulance to St. Al's on Curtis. I followed behind in my car, still dressed for a warm summer day, not aware of the long journey I was embarking on. Greg was admitted to the telemetry floor, and they began a series of tests. His condition continued worsening, and he was requiring more and more oxygen. At midnight, they decided to move him to ICU. Throughout the night, they continued to run tests, still not sure what was wrong. Sitting in his room in the middle of the night, I was quite cold in my summer wear, and I hate being cold. So I asked the nurse if they had a blanket. She brought me a flannel sheet that had been in the warmer. The warmth from that sheet didn't last long. Being on edge makes you even colder. And by the time the night was over, I was wrapped up in four blankets. The next day, with Greg still in ICU, a group of friends stopped by. I told them how cold I'd been during the night. I hadn't gone home and was still dressed in my summer clothes from the day before. A little later, one of my friends, Patty Evans, came back to the hospital carrying a beautiful cross quilt. She said, I recently made this quilt and wasn't sure who to give it to but it was obviously meant for you. The cross design was a little extra sign of God being with me through this ordeal. That quilt meant the world to me as it brought me not only physical comfort, but also emotional comfort, kind of like my security blanket for the next six weeks that Greg was in the hospital. 
To sum up his story, the day after he was admitted, his condition became so perilous he was placed on a ventilator in a drug-induced coma. He developed acute respiratory distress syndrome and was eventually diagnosed with a swine flu. He was the first one in either Boise Hospital with that serious of a case. He came very close to not being here today. He was in ICU for two weeks and then spent four more weeks in the hospital, two of those in rehab. While Greg was in ICU, I would see other people who'd been suddenly pulled from their daily routine by some sort of tragedy and were walking around the waiting room in the middle of the night with sheets wrapped around them. You're just not prepared to stay overnight at the hospital when emergency strikes. Later on, when Greg was in rehab, my friend Katie Black also gave me a quilt, another gift of love that brought the physical and emotional comfort I needed during this time. Shortly after Greg got out of the hospital, God planted a dream and desire in my heart. I could still see the image of a lady from Sun Valley whose husband had been in a motorcycle wreck, walking around the waiting room in the middle of the night with a sheet wrapped around her shoulders. My desire and dream was to have homemade blankets available to give to families who unexpectedly find themselves in these difficult circumstances and to bring them not only physical comfort, but a touch of God's comfort. The passage that came to mind for this project was 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. That dream and desire stayed strong, even though it took me a year before going to St. Al's in Boise to present the idea to them. They were very receptive and liked the thought of having something to give to families, since so much of what is done is done for the patients. So in March of 2011, Quilts of Comfort was born. Then in July of 2013, because the passion for this project was still strong, I went to St. Al's in Nampa. They were also excited to start the program. It's very cool to have the opportunity to bring people God's comfort through a blanket and to let them know that someone cares about what they're going through. Homemade blankets, quilts, and afghans are collected and a card with the following message to the recipient is attached. To the recipient of this quilt, we are sorry for the situation in which you find yourself at the hospital. Please accept this quilt as a gift to keep you comfortable, not only physically, but also emotionally, in knowing that someone cares. May the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort comfort you in your time of need. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. The blanket is placed inside a clear plastic bag and tied with a red ribbon to look like a gift for the family, which it is. The blanket is then theirs to keep. that's the story of how Quilts of Comfort came to be. It's a classic case of how God uses the hard times we experience to help others who are going through the same thing. If you're interested in making a blanket or quilt for this program, contact me at Becky Lyles at BeckyLyles.com and I'll get you in touch with Valerie. Also let me know if you'd like to join Valerie when she hosts a Blanket Making Saturday. This year, 40 women and girls produced more than 40 blankets in a few short hours. And not only was it a productive time, we really just have a lot of fun together. So, um, and even if you don't uh, get involved uh, with the quilt making, just pray for those who receive them. Peggy's Critique Group got together a collection of short stories last summer and compiled them in a book called Passageways. Here's one of Peter Level's stories. He calls this one 
Chapel of the Sacred Bramble. Chapel of the Sacred Bramble by Peter Level. Judas gripped the dagger hilt and slid around the corner, his back against the shadowed building. Tonight, while moon shone brightly enough to light his way, he would flee the monastery. He had to go. If he didn't leave now, he'd be no different than the other monks whose souls and bodies shriveled like dates under the merciless desert sun. In time, even their intellects succumbed to the isolation and the hot winds that blasted sand into every crevice of every building, bed, and body. The monk's destiny was no secret. The desert drove them to insanity. Rather than lose his mind in the midst of dry winds and equally dry brothers, he would gain the world soon all Byzantium would know the name Judas the Monk. Jesus' fallen disciple would be remembered no more, and the name Judas would become synonymous with healing, hope, and generosity, rather than greed and betrayal. Like a wary desert leopard, the monastery crouched halfway up Mount Sinai's rocky slope. Judas eyed the rugged peak and wondered if those who built the hermitage thought they would somehow protect Moses' sacred encounters with Jehovah. The full moon hovered just above the barren mountain, casting a silver glow against the monastery wall and the noiseless structures contained within. He pulled the hood of his wood, a wool robe over his head, the smell of stale cloth filling his nostrils. He concealed the knife deep within the wide sleeves and listened for activity. Hearing nothing, he stepped onto the worn stone path that ran between the buildings. A moist, clean smell drifted on the wind, the first he'd encountered in months. Perhaps it had rained somewhere. Perhaps he would find that place soon. An owl called into the night, the only sound other than the shuffle of his sandals and palm branches rattling in the breeze. He passed the cells where the other monks slept. He knew they were desperate for rest before midnight prayers, the latest intolerable creation of the abbot. Empty black windows seemed to stare back at him. He hurried on. Judas followed the path to the chapel of the sacred bramble. Outside the small sanctuary, a warm wind rustled the sacrosanct bush. As he'd done hundreds of times before, he tried to envision himself in Moses' sandals, watching the fire of God burn, yet seeing the shrub remain whole and unscathed but he couldn't recreate the hallowed moment. Since he'd arrived at the monastery, he'd witnessed only one miracle. That event had occurred inside the chapel. With a shaking hand, he opened the heavy wooden door, slipped inside, and closed it without a sound. Their order's tradition maintained that a lamp was to burn in the chapel at all times. But lately, olive oil had been scarce. Darkness smothered the tiny, airless room. Judas blinked as he turned, and then blinked again. The desert held such incredible absence of light, but this was the last time he would have to endure its blinding shroud. He took eight steps forward, imagining the vacant wooden benches on either side of the center aisle, and stopped when he neared the front. The only sound was his heavy breathing. He sucked in a whiff of sand-scented dust and covered his nostrils with his sleeve. Turning to the left, he took three paces, reached out and wrapped his fingers around a wooden icon he knew stood no taller than his forearm, the Virgin Mary. Three days ago, Mary had cried. He'd seen her tears during his prayers and later told the abbot, but he'd been rebuffed. 
The abbot said he believed him, but insisted he not tell the others. It was not their place to know. He'd mulled the abbot's words for two days. Finally, he understood why his superior failed to comprehend the icon's potential. The desert had driven him mad. That's when Judas decided to take Mary to Constantinople, where all would see the wonders of her powers. With care, he extended the knife, slipped the blade under the base, and dislodged the statue from the pedestal. The door behind him opened. Judas dropped the statue and spun around. Shadows danced with candlelight in the doorway. He rolled under a bench, praying he hadn't been seen or heard, and watched a hooded monk shuffle down the aisle, holding a candle in front of him. When the monk reached the front of the sanctuary, he whispered, Dear God! and set the candle on the bench above Judas. Kneeling beside the virgin's toppled form, he picked her up and carefully dusted her with his sleeve. Then he ran a finger over her cheeks, as if wiping away tears. Judas frowned. This monk, a kindly man he'd served and worshipped with for years, knew the virgin's secret, and he was obviously about to steal her. Judas scrambled to his feet and snatched the icon from the other man's hands. The monk screeched, No! and leapt at Judas, grasping the statue with both hands. Before his fellow cleric could gain the advantage, Judas drove the dagger deep into his chest. A gagging sound erupted from the man's throat as both men slipped to the ground. Judas rolled away from the dead monk, lifted the candle from the bench, and set it in the icon's nook. A sticky wetness covered his hand. He wiped it on the fallen monk's robe. Footsteps echoed outside. Judas wrenched the knife from the monk's chest and stood. He'd killed for the virgin. He would do it again. The abbot and brother Simeon stepped into the doorway. The candles they held illuminated their faces. They stared at him and then moved in unison toward the front. Judas looked down and saw the knife in one of his hands, the icon in the other. Blood stained both of their robes. He glanced again at Mary's face She was watching him with large, swollen eyes, human eyes filled with life. His hands shook, and so did she. The voice of the abbot penetrated his growing fear. What happened, Brother Judas? Was Brother John stealing the statue? Still staring at the statue, Judas nodded. The accusing eyes penetrated his soul, slashing it in two. He felt as dead as the man at his feet, yet his heart surged in his chest. He flung the icon against the wall. The wooden figure bounced onto the stone floor and spun in a circle. Still, the virgin's reproving gaze remained locked on him. Judas dropped the knife and shoved past the abbot and brother Simeon. Sprinting as fast as his robe and sandals allowed, he ran along the monastery walls, past gardens, cells, and workrooms to clatter down a narrow flight of steps. He had to escape the desert before it drove him crazy. Halfway down the stairs, he tripped and fell to the bottom. A wicked crack reverberated through his skull. He tried to get up, but his limbs didn't respond, and his head was twisted at a horrible angle on the warm stone. Why couldn't he breathe? Why couldn't he move? The abbot and brother Simeon knelt beside him. Clutched in the abbot's hand, Mary turned her face away from Judas. Black shadows narrowed his vision. He heard Simeon say, But I saw her gaze, Father. It was not meant for you, was the reply. Though Judah struggled for a breath, his lungs refused to draw in air. Quiet, 
The abbot held up a hand. She speaks. He lifted the icon to his ear. Judas heard a faint whisper. Did the abbot's lips move? He didn't think so. Simeon asked, What did she say? The abbot sighed. It seems the desert has driven our dear brother Judas insane. Follow the Moonbeam is one of the stories I wrote for the Passageways book. Marie unlatched the screen door and was about to step out when Dan said, Back at it? She turned, surprised. She turned his voice over the sound of a ball game on the television. Dan was seated in his recliner, an open newspaper in his hand, and an odd expression on his face. Snooping on the twins again? Since when did her husband of 27 years look away from a game long enough to know where she was or what she was doing? It's research. Got a deadline. She peered through the screen at the stripe of moonlight that flowed up the steps and over their front porch. The night was bright. Too bright. The kids might see her. Yet with a deadline looming before her like Mount Everest, she had no choice. Slipping out the door, she tiptoed toward the wooden swing, which hung in the farthest corner of the veranda. Camouflaged by leaf shadows cast through the tall cottonwoods that lined the street, the swing was a perfect cover for her nightly observations. Marie settled onto the swing. Dan probably thought she was a pervert, and Jim and Sally would call the cops if they had any inkling she spied on their teenagers every night. But she didn't know what else to do. For the first time in her career, she was experiencing writer's block. She rubbed at the knotted muscle between her eyebrows. She'd written dozens of love stories for women's magazines, plus six romance novels. Number seven shouldn't be a big deal. However, despite her initial vision for the story and her enthusiastic proposal to the publisher, This book had become a huge deal. Her editor expected a completed manuscript in two weeks, yet she'd only written 47 pages. In all her years of freelancing, she'd never missed a deadline or been at such a loss for words. A big black cat chased a smaller striped one through the grass, hissing and growling, which caught the attention of of Corky, the the next-door neighbor's dog. The old Doberman hurled himself into the rickety wooden fence, wheezing a hoarse warning to the intruders. Marie scrunched low in the swing. The the fence held, but Corky continued to bark long after the cats disappeared. Finally, the dog snuffled away and Marie sat up. Sliding a pencil and a pen light from her shorts pocket, she opened her notebook and prepared to write. She thought about the story, awaiting her words. The who, what, where, when, and how had come to her without a struggle, but the why eluded her. Love, she discovered, was not a romantic gondola glide down a tranquil river of bliss. Rather, it was a stomach-churning roller coaster ride. She tapped the pencil on her knee. Why in the world did humans strap their hearts into bone-jarring, emotional roller coasters? Were the fleeting, gravity-defying highs really worth the gut-wrenching, painful descents? Was a glimpse of heaven worth the plunge into the pit of despair? Marie shook her head and turned to a new page. Goodness, she was cynical tonight. She peered through the trees at the house across the street. The twin girls who lived in the two-story home with their parents had recently discovered the opposite sex. Almost every evening they sat on the front porch with their boyfriends and their dog, Squeegee. Marie smiled. Tonight she had the light of a full moon to study their antics. One of the girls jumped off the porch steps and skipped away, her dog and her boyfriend at her heels. Squeegee yapped and ran figure figure eights around the couple. 
The pair on the porch laughed. The boy shouted, Get him, squeegee! Marie grinned, but didn't feel the scene was one she could use in her novel. She glanced through the living room window. As usual, Dan had fallen asleep in his chair. The newspaper was spread on his chest like a collapsed tent, and his snores rose above the blare of the television. The remains of his warmed-up supper sat on the end table. She sighed, remembering the endless, amorous summer evenings of early marriage. She turned around in time to see the young man capture his partner and lead her toward a broad tree, his arm around her shoulders. Bathed in brilliant moonlight, they made a pretty picture with the dog trotting beside them. But still, Marie didn't write in her notebook. She wasn't as much interested in the touchy-feeling stuff as she was in the kids' lighthearted relationships. A cricket chirped under the porch. The moon climbed the night sky. Heavy, she whispered the word to the trees. Her relationship with Dan had grown so heavy. They never teased or played anymore. In fact, they rarely even talked. She leaned her head on the cushioned back of the swing, smelling the roses that bloomed beside the porch. They'd had so many good years together. When did they? How did they lose touch with each other? Their big old house harbored happy memories of laughing, romping, door-slamming children, of frolicking puppies and frisky kittens, of neighborhood parties, holiday feasts, intimate conversations beside the fireplace, and slow dancing in the den after the children were tucked in for the night. Maybe it was when Dan got the promotion at the refinery. From that point on, it seemed he rarely ate meals or went on outings with the family. And the pattern didn't change when their last child left home three years ago. Dan still worked long hours, six, sometimes seven days a week, and was usually too tired to go to a movie or out dancing on weekends. True, they occasionally ate lunch at a restaurant after the Sunday service, when Dan wasn't working, but they just stared at the other patrons with very little to say to each other. Was there another woman? The thought crossed her mind for the millionth time. She squeezed her eyes shut. Don't go there, Marie. A girlish giggle giggle filtered from the teenager's direction. Marie squinted through the leaves but saw only the couple on the front steps. They appeared to be in the midst of a deep discussion. Then she noticed the leaves on the tree were rustling and shimmering in the moonlight. Oh my goodness, they climbed the tree. Now there's a fun idea. She switched on her pen light and scribbled frantically. When she finished, she flipped off the light and sat back. What would she do with that juicy tidbit? It didn't work with the book's storyline. She didn't have time to make major changes. She frowned and closed her notebook. Why did she do this to herself? Romance novels weren't exactly literary works of art. Though her daughters read her stories, her husband hadn't read a single word she'd written. Even though she attended every one of his company's boring award banquets, she yawned. Most men didn't read romance novels. She understood that. But it would help if he showed a little interest in her writing. With a shove of her foot, Marie rocked the swing back and forth and watched the heat lightning flash in the distance. Cool evening breezes mingled with the sultry warmth of the day, caressing her arms. A pair of fireflies flittered nearby. Oh, Dan, you're my husband. I miss you. She looked inside. His chair was empty. He'd gone to bed without saying goodnight, and she'd been too caught up in the neighbor kids' activities to notice when he turned off the television. The girl on the porch leaned on her boyfriend's shoulder, apparently mesmerized by his monologue. Marie sighed. To be honest, this thing with Dan wasn't all one-sided. She didn't exactly dote on her husband these days. When the kids were still at home, she'd fix some sack lunches for work and wrote silly love notes on the napkins. Now he grabbed hamburgers and onion rings at the burger joint near his office, which wasn't helping his waistline or his cholesterol levels. 
She ran her fingers through her hair, thinking of how she used to comb it and put on lipstick and a clean blouse before he came home at night. But lately, especially when she was on a writing binge, she wore the same old sweats or t-shirts and shorts day in and day out. And she hadn't used makeup in months. A flash of light caught her eye. Marie twisted to see flames in the dining room just beyond the living room archway. Oh no, Dan was asleep upstairs. She dashed across the porch and flung open the screen door. Dan, wake up! Charging through the living room, she shouted, Dan, you've got to get... Marie stopped. A glittering crystal rose bowl ringed with red roses sat in the middle of the dining room table, reflecting and refracting the light of a solitary candle. Palms against her pounding heart, she checked the room. This was it? No fire? A flower-bordered envelope lay beside the candle. Her name was written on it in Dan's square, bold print. Her heart raced. Why would he write her a letter? He didn't even like to write checks. Was he planning to leave her but afraid to tell her to her face? With shaking hands, she slowly opened the envelope and slid out a matching sheet of perfumed paper. Follow the moonbeam to find the one who loves you most. What? Marie rotated in a mindless circle. Moonbeam? What moonbeam? The one on the porch? She read the note again. It couldn't be from Dan, even though it looked like his writing. He never talked to she, and he'd never written her love notes. She sucked in a breath and did another 360. Was this some kind of prank? There it was. A crisscross swath of moonlight led from the dining room floor across the sunroom to the French doors that opened onto the patio but were now closed. Treading the light path, she tiptoed to the doors and stopped. Oh, my. Dressed in his best shirt and pants, her burly blue-collared husband leaned against the deck railing with posed casualness. He appeared to be moon-gazing. Nearby, a huge basket of red roses and two tall white candles topped a small linen-covered table. Marie cracked the door open and heard music. Where was that coming from? Dan turned to her. Welcome, my love. She caped at him. He smiled. Sweetheart, please, come join me. She couldn't move. Not a finger, not a foot. Dan walked to her, put his arm around her shoulders and guided her to the table, where he pulled out a chair and helped her sit. The soft melody seemed to emanate from somewhere near her feet and mingle with a scent of roses. What? What is? Thoughts washed from her brain before she could speak them. Dan carefully poured amber liquid into wine glasses. She recognized the ones they'd used to toast each other at the wedding reception. What's going on? He chuckled. Is that what you're trying to ask? She nodded. You must think I've lost it. Marie opened her mouth, but no words came. Actually, his forehead creased. I thought I was about to lose you. He sat down and reached for her hand. She saw candlelight reflected in his eyes, which were bright with tears. You probably won't believe this. He blinked and cleared his throat. I talked with the company counselor about us. She frowned. Don't worry. He raised his hand. I didn't tell him anything personal. I just asked how to improve our communication. He gave me several tips and then... Dan wiped a tear from his cheek. Crazy as it sounds, he said. Isn't your wife the one who writes the romance novels? How? Marie could barely croak the words out. How did he know? I guess his wife is quite a fan of yours. He asked if I'd read your books. I was embarrassed to have to say I hadn't. That's when he eyed me over the top of his glasses like my grandfather used to do and said, Dan, I have a feeling you'll find all the ideas you'll ever need right under your nose. So I snuck a book from yourself. I've been reading a chapter a day while I eat my lunch. He grinned. Marie, you're a great writer. I've gotten so caught up in the story I can't wait for lunchtime. And I want to read your other books, too. She sat back. 
slowly shaking her head. He squeezed her hand. I know this is late in coming, but I regret how much time I spend at work. I've missed you, and I want us to be friends and lovers again. I want to have fun, to do things and go places together. I want to work less and be with you more, to have long talks like when we were first married. He took a long breath, his chest rising with effort. Sorry, I'm not used to talking so much. Now the tears rolled down her face. That's what I want too, sweetheart, more than anything in the world. Dan lifted her fingers to his lips. I love you. I love you too, she caressed his jaw. He wrapped her fingers around the stem of one of the goblets before picking up the other one. Let's drink to us. Marie clicked her glass against his. May we have many more wonderful years together. Elbows touching on the table and arms intertwined, they sipped, smiling into each other's eyes. They lowered their drinks and Dan shoved a cereal bowl filled with chocolate-coated pretzels to Marie's side of the table. Here, have some of these. Oh, Dan, my favorite, how sweet of you. She slipped a pretzel between her husband's lips and ate one herself. Then Dan pulled her to her feet to kiss her long and hard. Giggles from the direction of the twins' house finally drew them apart. Dan raised an eyebrow. Must have trimmed the bushes too low. That's okay, Marie grinned. Maybe they can learn a thing or two from us old fogies. She laid her head on his chest. Can I borrow that line? What line? They began to slow dance to the music. The one about following the moonbeam. Dan groaned. I know, I know. It's corny, but you have to only yourself to blame. Reading your book makes me feel poetic. It's perfect. She snuggled closer, especially the part about finding the one who loves you most. And now a poem by Eugene Shea. That's S-H-E-A. In honor of trees. You know, it's about that, it's that springy time when you get the flowers and the trees, so I thought this would be appropriate. In honor of trees. It's trees that's best by any test of natural wonders that can be found. A friend of man throughout the land in good regard, the world around. A tree that spreads its leafy head and stretches tall to reach the sky. The birds are friends. It bows to winds and waves the passing eagles by. Whose roots grow deep, their grip to keep and tightly grasps the firmament. Through the worst of gales, its hold prevails, its hidden anchor is permanent. To man's, mankind's aid, its cooling shade, a respite that most must favor. For firewood cuts and syrup to nuts and bears fruit of every flavor. When grown mature and end is sure, it falls before the logger's axe and off to mill for joist and sill or newsprint waiting for the facts. While I in haste this paper waste that cost some tree a precious bough, I plant a tree, replacement B, though it be 50 years from now. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.